I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest intelligence picture surrounding the Israel-Hamas conflict, we have with us Emily Harding, who is a senior fellow and deputy director of our international security program. And Emily is also the new director of the very newly launched Intelligence, National Security, and Technology Program here at CSIS. Emily, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Intel is really important now more than ever. Tell us why. Well, we see from what happened just in Israel last week that intelligence can make or break the national security of a state. Sadly, what I think we're looking at here is a real intelligence failure. They had some information about what was being planned. It seems like it was potentially a failure of collection, a failure of analysis, and a failure of imagination to put all the pieces together and decide what Hamas was capable of. So now that it's happened and it's tragic, what now? What is Israel and the United States trying to do to regroup? Right. So I I really feel for my colleagues in the Israeli intelligence services right now, um, back when I was in the intelligence community in the U.S., we used to do consistent analytical exchanges with folks in Mossad um, and in the IDF. They are the best of the best. They are really stellar intelligence collectors, intelligence operators, intelligence analysts. But intelligence failures happen to the best of us. And right now they're going to be grappling with the past and the present and the future. When it comes to the past, they're going to be trying to figure out how their collection failed so spectacularly. Where were their human sources? Where was the signet that they needed to pick up on better indications that Hamas was planning this? Why did they not put the pieces together to see that what they saw as an exercise and just sort of normal Hamas behavior was actually something much bigger? So that's kind of the past. And I have a feeling the past is going to be put on hold until the current hostilities are over because they just don't have time for a bunch of navel gazing right now. Instead, they're going to be deeply focused on the present. And the most critical issues facing them right this second are finding the hostages, 200 of them almost, figuring out where they are, where they may have been taken. Are they alive? Is Hamas using them as human shields, as they almost certainly are? And then secondly, finding Hamas. They are well known for hiding amongst the population, for using things like mosques and apartment buildings as hiding places. Gaza is an extraordinarily densely packed area. It's, I think, one of the most densely packed um, by humans locations in the entire world, and that makes it an extremely difficult place to operate. So the Israeli intelligence services are going to be looking very hard at where exactly any kind of ground incursion would need to go to find hostages and to find Hamas and to minimize civilian casualties. A lot of invective is being thrown the Israelis' way right now, but they really have proven themselves over and over and over again in conflicts to be very focused on doing their best to avoid civilian casualties. So that's the, the intelligence challenge of the moment. If you want to look into the intelligence challenge of the future, they're going to be looking north and they're going to be looking east. So looking north at Hezbollah. Looking north at Hezbollah. If you look north of Israel along the uh, Lebanon-Israel border, I mean, that that border is heavily militarized and has been for decades. Israel and Hezbollah have fought several conflicts. I remember the one in 2006 well. Um, I was pretty much on the ground when it started. And they're going to be looking very closely at any indication that Hezbollah is itching to get into this fight. 
And then if you look to the east, they're going to be looking at Iran and wondering what Iran is planning as far as support to Hamas, uh, support to Palestinian Islamic Jihad, support to Hezbollah. Is Iran going to get directly involved? Because that's the kind of event that really does plunge the region into conflict. Let me ask you this. In addition to those threats, how do Syria, what's left of al-Qaeda and ISIS in those places, and also even Yemen, figure into this picture? Yeah, you ignore those things at your peril. Syria has proven itself to be repeatedly challenging in all kinds of interesting and unexpected ways. We know that Hezbollah has a huge presence on the ground there and that Iran also is executing a lot of influence there. Syria is trying to re-enter into the community in the region um, and is sort of making tentative progress there. But Assad is still the terrible bad guy he always was, and there's still ongoing fighting on the ground. And the conflict against ISIS, I mean, they, they really have been reduced to a shadow of their, their former selves, thank goodness. But again, it's, it's something that you ignore at your peril. Yemen, too, is a really interesting and sort of complicated picture I think too many people say that the Houthis are an Iranian proxy, which suggests that the Iranians are giving them orders and telling them exactly what to do and that they listen. I think it's a more complicated relationship than that. It really is more like um, the Houthis do what they want to do with the help of Iran. And when their interests coincide, they work together. But we haven't seen as much of an indication that the Houthis are really taking orders directly from Iran. Still, they have plenty of opportunity to cause problems. So let's talk about the immediate threat again, just to circle back. We're talking about finding up to 200 hostages. Hamas says they have even more. We're talking about finding them needle in a haystack, even though many people have evacuated the northern parts of Gaza, Gaza City. There's, it's still dense. It's still packed with tunnels. I've heard there's something like 300 miles of tunnels that they have to try to figure out. These are tight spaces. These aren't these aren't big spaces where, you know, battalions can rush in. It's really difficult. And so intelligence is all the more important and time's ticking. This is I think their 13th or 14th day being hostage. So if you're running operations right now, and you're Israel, and also you're in the United States trying to assist your ally, what are you thinking about? Yeah, it is the worst of the worst of urban combat conditions. Sadly, the U.S. has learned a lot about urban combat in the last 20 years, fighting in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, but this is next level. Gaza is one of those places that has been invaded by the Israelis several times, and as a result, the militant groups on the ground have learned to adapt with things like going underground, the tunnel system that you're talking about. There are easy ways to booby trap an area and then escape from that area. And as Israeli troops try to invade a particular space, then the fighters that were there before just disappear. Tight spaces, as you say, you know, you, it's, it's difficult to do something like surround a building, especially because you don't know what tunnel goes down and out and away. The Israelis really have their work cut out for them. I know um, some parents of Israeli soldiers who are, are completely terrified right now about what their, their children are going to be facing when they go into that situation. I would also say that you know Hamas and the Israelis, they've been toe-to-toe for so many years now, and they know each other so well that there's a little bit of an anticipating what the other side is going to do. When it comes to the hostages, too, Hamas has every incentive to take those people and put them in locations where they will be effective human shields. And there's kind of a combination there of 
communicating to the Israelis that we have the hostages and we're going to keep them with us, so be careful where you step, uh, and then also keeping some ambiguity about where they might be so the Israelis can't target a particular location and go in and try and find them. It is a, a truly tragic situation for the hostages and for the families of the hostages. And, you know, I personally find myself being a, an intelligence professional, being a foreign policy professional, thinking through the, the challenges of the logistics of it and the geopolitics of it, but then also just feeling so sympathetic for the families of those taken. And what are some of the kinds of tools that you can use to try to figure out where hostages are or where Hamas soldiers are? Yeah, as an Israeli intel analyst, you're going to be looking at every tiny piece of information that you can get a hold of, and then the real challenge is deciding what's real and what's not. There will be some human sources, probably, that are reporting in, but they may have heard from a brother who heard from a cousin who heard from a friend that there was a hostage in that building three days ago. And who knows? I mean, that could be true. That could not be true. It could have been true three days ago and not be true now. Sometimes fighters, especially foot soldiers, slip up. They do something dumb, like they talk over a radio about what they have and they say the wrong thing. And you can pick up those indications and hopefully act on it very quickly. Uh, sometimes they slip up even worse. They post something on social media. There's something in the background where you can identify, you know, I know that building. That building is over here. You can go there and you can check it out. Something like Gaza overhead imagery is going to be less useful because it is so dense and, you know, indoor buildings. You can't, can't see inside to a of a building usually from space. But, you know, drone technology can be helpful sometimes, can fit into tight spaces where, you know, you might not otherwise be able to get a visual. There are technical tools that you can use and there are human tools that you can use and that you hope in the combination of those things you can get a solid piece of information and confirmation that you can then act on. Does geothermal help in this? I mean, it can. Uh, if you know which building you're looking at and you can look at it from particular angles, depending on the construction of the building too, on the weather, frankly, uh, you can try and locate how many people are inside a particular building, but you don't necessarily know who those people are until you get a closer look. It's a very challenging problem. Emily, I want to ask you about Egypt in this equation. We hear often about the Rafa crossing. It's not often reported in a way that I think many of our listeners can analyze that why is stuff held up there and why are people not, for instance, Americans, French citizens, people like that able to get out into Egypt right now? That has to have something to do with intelligence also, doesn't it? Honestly, I think this is one of the untold stories of this conflict, why on earth the Rafa crossing is not open. Uh, I have heard a slew of different explanations, some of which I find more plausible than others. War crossing has two edges. One is the Egyptian edge and one is the Palestinian edge. There are lots of reasons the Palestinian edge don't want their side open. But that said, the Egyptians have a lot of power and influence there, and it does seem like it would make sense to open the border for dual citizens who could just get out, get out of the way for humanitarian aid. They are talking about moving humanitarian aid in um, through sea routes, perhaps, and then also maybe through that border crossing. I think what's really not being discussed right now that should be, though, is that the Egyptians are scared. If you are Egypt, the last thing in the world you want is a million Palestinian refugees flooding into your country. And while the Egyptian government is going to stand up and talk about how they support the Palestinians, they're not supporting them enough to open the gates and to let them in and take care of them. 
So I think that is a real leverage point of diplomacy that the Biden administration and others should be using with the Egyptians to say, look, this is your problem, too. It's right there on your border and you need to be helping. Well, I mean, when it comes to refugees, European countries, our European allies have taken so many refugees. Think about Poland taking Ukrainian refugees. Think about the United States and how many refugees we've taken that we take every day. What does it take to persuade the Egyptians and others in the region that they need to help out here? So uh, our friend and colleague, Norm Rule, will talk about this uh, until he's blue in the face. But you have to remember that Hamas comes from the Muslim Brotherhood. And the Muslim Brotherhood has a long history in Egypt as a group that was attempting to install Islamist rule in opposition to a democratic regime. So Egypt is quite concerned about the influx of a group of Palestinians that could destabilize Egypt. And I understand that. Definitely understand that. Understandable. So what they're going to want is some kind of assurance that anybody who comes across that border is not directly involved with Hamas. It's almost impossible to do. It's not like you carry a membership card. They'll probably look very skeptically at any military-aged male, which may or may not be fair in this situation. They also just don't have the infrastructure directly on that side of the border to do things like accept huge numbers of refugees and then try to sort out you know, who's a, who's a good guy and who's potentially a combatant. Setting up that kind of structure would be an international undertaking. It's a fascinating set of circumstances for an intelligence professional like you and some of your colleagues to think through. Tell me about the program that you've launched and, and how you're going to continue to analyze these issues and what the program really attempts to do to impact policy here in Washington. So Intel is more important now than ever. Um, we see from what's going on in the region, Intel played a critical role in not foreseeing this, not preventing this kind of strategic surprise. And because events in the globe move so fast right now, strategic surprise is not only possible, uh, it's happening every day. And part of the reason I thought that this program was so important right now is because we're in an era of great power competition where you see China making great strides forward in technological achievements that will influence intelligence, that will influence defense. You see Russia innovating on the battlefield daily in Ukraine, coming up with new ways to fight, new ways to collect information, new ways to control the, the information narrative space. And all of that comes together for a very challenging picture for the United States. Director Burns gave a speech over the summer um, in his Ditchley lecture where he talked about how we're in a plastic moment in history where things seem to be changing very quickly and how technology is going to chart a new course for all of us in ways that we can't predict. He talked about the, the hockey stick dynamic where we're moving along at a, a flat pace and then all of a sudden a technological development comes along and you see things go high and right very fast and grappling with that as an intelligence organization is extraordinarily difficult. So what I hope for this program to be is the go-to for folks in the intelligence community, for folks in the defense intelligence enterprise, to think about these problems from an outside perspective, from a new way, to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I spent nearly 20 years in government myself, and I know that the day-to-day -day can be just a crushing pace of activity. When you have two hours to write a PDB, you're not sitting back and thinking, you know, how is AI going to change the future of intelligence work? PDB meaning presidential daily brief. Presidential daily brief, right? You Something happens in the world, your boss comes to you and says, write that up, and you have, you know, two hours to get it done. And it's going to the president. And it's going to the president of the United States, so it better be good. And that's not the moment that you have to think about 
know, did I capably use AI to sort out which spec in the Pacific is a Chinese ship and which spec in the Pacific is just a fishing boat? But that's what I hope to do. I hope to take a look at that bigger picture and be that outside reference. Well, Emily, we're going to be following what you do really closely and looking forward to having you back to discuss what you're studying. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 